do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Great to be here with you. Uh, for those that may not know, my name is Brian. I'm an elder here at Coastal Gloucester. Um, just thrilled you're here. One of the things I love about weeks when we do an acoustic set is hearing everybody sing. Isn't that awesome? Um, as being up here on the front, I could hear everybody's, you know, projecting up at me. It was really, really powerful. Thank you for singing with us today. And one thing I neglected to mention earlier in the announcements is tonight is Family Sunday with our student ministry. Um, so what that means is if you have students, 6th through 12th grade, you can bring them, but also families are invited, and there will be free food and worship, two great things. So come out tonight. It's at 5 o'clock here at this campus. So, All right, this morning we are going to be continuing in our series through 1 John entitled, That You May Know. Now, as Pastor Nate pointed out in the beginning of this series, the Apostle John gives us three tests to determine whether or not our faith is genuine so that we can have assurance of our salvation. Those three tests are moral, social, and theological. And so today, we're going to be looking primarily at a theological test where John makes clear that what we believe about Christ and the gospel is a key indicator of whether or not we are saved. Now remember, John is writing to a church that's facing what? Anybody remember? False teachers, right? He's giving them a framework for how to understand and respond to what they're experiencing. Now, some of you may not be aware, we actually had an incident last week where there was a false teacher among us. How many of you remember on Father's Day, the children uh, brought home the little popsicle things that said, you're the coolest on the back, right? Well, my son, my four-year-old son, Max, informed us when he got home that he went around telling the other kids that unlike their popsicles, his popsicle was a real popsicle. And he actually deceived another kid to the point that they tried to eat it. So moral of that story is it's never too early to be on guard against false teaching. <laughs> and unlike my son, who was taking something fake and trying to pass it off as the real thing, what, what was happening in John's day is these false teachers were pointing to the, the true Christ who came in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, they were saying, eh, that he wasn't really the Christ. He wasn't really the Son of God. It was temporarily just indwelling the man, Jesus of Nazareth, during his earthly ministry. But God didn't literally come in the flesh. So what they were doing is they were denying a central attribute about who Jesus Christ is. They were preaching a different Jesus and a different gospel and the truths we're going to look at today, they're essential for our lives, right? In our modern day, we face no shortage of false teaching, right? And sometimes it's really obvious, like when you're in Food Lion and someone wants to come and tell you about the mother God and who's been around for eight, 19 billion years and reincarnated 500 times. Just, you ever experienced that? No, just me? Okay, some of you know who I'm talking about. It's, 
When it's like that, it's really obvious, but sometimes false teaching is really, really subtle. And so John is giving us this warning and this reminder this morning to, to be on guard and let the Holy Spirit guard. You know, many are gonna say, I believe in Jesus or I follow Jesus, but it's, it's a Jesus of their own making. It's not the Jesus that's revealed to us in the scriptures. And so this morning, we're gonna see in our text, which is 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're gonna see in our text today that when the truth remains in us, we will remain in Christ and we will receive the promise of eternal life. Let's go to our text. Beginning in verse 18, it says, "'Children, it is the last hour, "'and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, "'so now many Antichrists have come. "'Therefore, we know that it is the last hour.'" They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let's pray before we continue. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, and I ask your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth this morning, to illuminate this text to us, help us to see it clearly for what it is. Lord, I pray that we would never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, verse 18, he says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So John begins this section by addressing them as children. And as we've already seen earlier in this letter, this is an indication that he's addressing the true children of God, believers in Christ. And what is the first thing he tells them? He says, it is the last hour. Now, sometimes people ask me, they say, do you believe we're in the last days? And I look at them and I say, well, of course I do. We've been in the last days for about 2,000 years, right? That's what the scriptures say. Remember in Acts chapter two, on the day of Pentecost, the spirit of God falls. People are kind of freaking out, wondering what's going on. And the apostle Peter stands up and what's he do? He quotes from Joel two and he says, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter stands up and says, hey guys, remember the prophecy from the prophet Joel about the last days? We're here. 
And so, uh, likewise, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. Through whom also he created the world. So the consistent testimony of the New Testament is that we've been in these last days or the last hour, as John puts it, since the first coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, and we will remain in these last days or in this last hour until he returns again. And guess what? That might be 10,000 years from now, or it might be tomorrow. We simply don't know. And so as Christians, our job is to live with an eager expectation of the return of Christ, to always be ready, not to be preoccupied about when, but to always be prepared. John says one of the ways we know it's the last hour is that many antichrists have come. Now, I know some of you, your ears perk up when you hear that term antichrist. You go, oh, it's going to be a good one this week. <laughs> Maybe you're picturing Nikolai Carpathia from the Left Behind series, or you're picturing some other character in uh, apocalyptic fiction. Now, the term Antichrist, it, it occurs in the New Testament five times. Four of them are right here in 1 John, and one of them is in 2 John. And throughout Christian, uh, throughout Christian history, Christians have loved to play a game uh, that I call pin the tail on the Antichrist, right? They're always some figure in history will rise up and everyone say that, oh, that's the Antichrist. You know, there was Nero, Emperor Nero in the first century, great candidate for the Antichrist, right? There was the Pope and the papacy, which most of the reformers believed was the Antichrist. There's Hitler and various dictators, U.S. presidents. You know, people are quick to point and say, that's the Antichrist. And what that term Antichrist means, it means against Christ or against the anointed one. Well, it can also be understood to mean in the place of Christ. So we can look at human history and say anybody that's been actively against Christ or against the truth of Christ or anyone who has tried to place themselves in the rightful place of Christ is an antichrist, right? That's John's point here. This is a defining characteristic of the last days that we live in. So John's emphasis here in the text, it's not on a single figure known as the Antichrist, but it's on the fact that in the last days, there have been and will continue to be many Antichrists, and he wants us to be prepared for that. Verse 22, he calls these Antichrists liars. He said, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. In verse 26, he warns that these antichrists are actively trying to deceive the church. And so in this case, these antichrists that John's referring to, they are not external figures that are oppressing the church. They are people rising up from within the church body, right? Verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This is very similar to a warning the Apostle Paul gave to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, notice here and other places in Scripture, the apostles pull no punches when it comes to false teaching and false teachers, right? And we shouldn't either. 
It's not a difference of opinion. It's not something on which we can agree to disagree. No, the apostles called them liars. The apostles called them antichrists. The apostles called them fierce wolves. This is, this is dramatic language. And there's a funny story that uh, church father Arrhenius wrote about a story that one of John's disciples, a man named Polycarp, told. Um, he said the apostle John, he saw a known false teacher named Serenthus. He saw him in a public place. And it's very possible that Serenthus is actually one of the people John's referring to in this letter. And so John sees this man named Serenthus, a known false teacher. He sees him in a public place. And how does John respond? He runs out of the building and says, let us flee lest the building fall on us for Serenthus, the enemy of truth is inside. Now that sounds really extreme and dramatic, right? But it illustrates how John felt about false teachers, how seriously he took this. He didn't even wanna be in the same building with this man. Why? Because he was worried God was gonna strike him down and that they might get caught in the collateral damage. The serious stuff in the mind of John. Now, we're not necessarily talking about our dear sister Mary Sue, who's a little confused on a matter of doctrine, but genuinely trying to understand the truth. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. Not a new believer who's learning and growing and, and trying to be faithful to the scriptures. We are talking about uh, people who understand the truth of God's word, knowingly and willfully reject it, and then teach it to other people, teach the falsehood to other people, rather. That's the category that we're talking about here. And John tells us these false teachers came from within the church. He says, uh, they were not of us, meaning true followers in Christ, because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. He says they went out that it might become plain they all are not of us. So we see examples in modern times of people deconstructing their faith. I'm sure you're all familiar with that term. If not, um, it seems like every other day there's some famous Christian author or Christian musician, supposedly Christian, uh, deconstructing, if you will, their faith and, and turning away sometimes to other religions, sometimes to no religion at all. Uh, and John here is giving us a framework for understanding that those who don't remain in the faith were never true believers in the first place. He's, he's telling us these people weren't followers of Christ that lost their salvation. No, they were never saved in the first place because he's clear. If they were, they would have continued in the faith. And I know some of your minds are probably going to people you know who have at some point professed faith in Christ and then walked away. Maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a child. As a youth pastor, we used to see more often than I liked students that would come in, make a profession of faith in Christ. It would seem to be growing, seem to be genuine. And at some point down the road, they would walk away. It's heartbreaking. And don't hear me saying today that anybody who's wandering is hopeless. It's not what I'm saying. We can and we should pray that God is allowing people to temporarily wander for whatever reasons we don't understand and that he will call them back and restore them. That should be our prayer. That's our hope, church, especially those of you with children who are not walking with the Lord. That is your hope. But John is clear here, and we need to take it seriously that those who don't continue in the faith are not true believers in Christ in the first place. Now, you may be wondering, are people gonna say that about me one day? Are they gonna say, man, I really thought they were a genuine follower of Christ. What happened? 
And if you're, if you're truly a follower of Christ, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about losing your salvation. We know from God's word that those who are truly saved will persevere in their faith. We can look at places like Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 that says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We can look at places like Philippians 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We could look at places like John chapter 6, John chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. There's so many places in the Bible that clearly teach us about assurance. But you may be asking, okay, I'm with you so far, but if perseverance is a test that my faith is genuine, how can I ever have assurance? Good question. Something we got to wrestle with. And as Pastor Nate pointed out at the beginning of this series, this is one of John's purposes for writing. This is one of the questions John is trying to answer. And he tells us that clearly in 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What? That you may know you have eternal life. John wants us to have assurance that our faith is genuine, that we have eternal life. And my hope today is that uh, this sermon and this passage in particular will give you that assurance if you're lacking it today. Or if you're honest enough with yourself to say, you know what, I don't have good reason to have assurance that it will serve as a wake-up call for you. God uses these warnings in Scripture to call us back to himself. These warnings are a means of God keeping us in the faith. So in verse, verse 20, we see John pivots. He, he starts off by talking about these antichrists. Now he pivots and says, but you, and he's contrasting these antichrists in the true believers in the church. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Now, what does anointed by the Holy One mean? It's kind of a loaded term, right? And in Christian circles, particularly charismatic ones, or, you know, you turn on, TBN and you see the guy in the polyester suit talk about he's got the anointing and he's got you know anointing for this and anointing for that and it's like what does that even mean it's so it's gotten so muddled and that word anointed uh, John doesn't ex- explicitly say right here in this text what he means but we can look uh, at other texts of scripture to get a better understanding the word Christ means anointed one Acts ten thirty eight tells us that Jesus himself was anointed with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the anointed one, and he anoints us with his spirit. Later in 1 John, John says uh, in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So the anointing then, it's the indwelling Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to all who are born again. That's what John's talking about here. John Piper once said when commenting on Verse 20, he said, you could accurately rephrase this as, you have the Holy Spirit from God in you, and so you know the truth. That's what John's getting at here. The anointing, it's, it's not reserved for the super spiritual elites, okay? You don't have to have a high midichlorian count. The anointing is something that every true believer has. Some of you knew what that meant, some of you didn't, that's Okay. Verse 21, he says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. 
because no lie is of the truth. So John's clear that he writes not because they don't know the truth, but because they already know. He's not giving them new information. He's reminding them of the truth of God's word that they already know. I can tell you, preachers spend probably 90% of their time telling people stuff they already know. Why? Because we are prone to forget. We're leaky. We leak. We got to get filled back up, right? We need to be reminded of the truth of God's word over and over again. Verse 22, he says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So this He's, he's highlighting here the importance of believing sound doctrine. That's what he's doing. And some people get a little squeamish when you start talking about doctrine. You know, they, this emphasis on truth and doctrine, they get a little uneasy with it. And they say, well, can't we just love Jesus and love people and everybody just be happy? You know, can't we be known more for our grace than our truth? And John's answer is No. No, sound doctrine matters, church. Kevin DeYoung put it this way. He said, Christianity is more than doctrine, yes, but it is not less than doctrine, right? We can't be so reductionistic and reduce Christianity down to a point below the basic elements and truths that make it up. Can't do it. That's what John's warning against. He's clear that what we believe and what we confess about Jesus Christ is essential. Now, sure, you can believe the right stuff about Jesus and still go to hell. That's possible, right? Satan himself believes true things about Jesus, right? But he doesn't believe those things the way that the anointed believe those things. He doesn't believe those things the way that you believe those things. He doesn't believe these facts in a way that go from intellectual knowledge into a heart knowledge that cause uh, him to savor and cherish Christ above all else. He doesn't believe those things in a way that cause him to believe and trust the gospel in the person and work of Christ. That doesn't happen naturally. That only happens when you're anointed with the Holy One. It's not about information. It's not about how smart you are, how much you know. It's about the Holy Spirit of God putting his truth inside of you and you remaining in that truth. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What you believe and confess about Jesus is essential, church. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So John, he first gives this command. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Now that word abide is not a word we use uh, all that often. It simply just means to remain or to continue in. Very simple definition. There's no deep like Greek meaning there. It just means remain. So, what he's saying is to remain in what you heard from the beginning. And what you heard from the beginning is referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ as preached by the apostles. The gospel is simply this. It's the good news that although we have sinned against a holy God and we deserve nothing but his wrath, Jesus Christ was born as a human, both fully God and fully man. He lived a sinless life, 
kept the law of God perfectly on our behalf. He died a substitutionary death in our place. He rose bodily from the dead to defeat sin and death for all of his people. And Jesus is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, who is redeeming and restoring all things back to himself until the day that Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And guess what? On that day, all of God's redeemed people will be resurrected to eternal life with him. It's the greatest message on the planet, church. We should never tire of hearing it. We should never be bored of it. We should never feel like we've, we've gone beyond it or that's, that's elementary, give me something more. No, the gospel is something that we constantly need to be rooted in. It needs to remain in us. It's got to be the foundation we stand on. Why? Ephesians 4, 14 says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. John's command is let what you heard from the beginning remain in you. And church, this is one of the ways you can know that you have eternal life, that the gospel, the truth of God's word is abiding in you. Verse 24, John tells us that when the truth remains in us, what will happen? we will remain in the Son and in the Father. So we understand this, that it is through our union with Christ that we have union with the Father. Jesus put it this way, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So you ain't getting to the Father unless you go through the Son, right? We have a union with Christ, and our union with Christ gives us union with the Father this, uh, he says the result of this, of abiding in the Son and the Father, is this. It's the promise that Jesus made to us, eternal life. And John's here referring to the numerous times that Jesus promised eternal life. I'm going to give you a few of them right here. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 6, 39 and 40, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 27, 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is good news, church. I hope you're encouraged by that. Because if you believe in the son, you confess the son, he will raise you up on the last day and no one, no thing can snatch you out of his hand. You are secure in the hand of Christ. This eternal life that we're talking about, it's not just about living forever. Big deal, right? It's not just about living forever. Paul Washer put it this way. He said, eternal life describes the quality of life, not just the quantity of life. Jesus said in John 17, three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this eternal life, it's not about living forever. It's about living forever in constant communion, intimate communion with the Father and the Son. So much more than living forever. I want you to think with me for a moment about heaven. Right? We're going to live eternally. No sin, no sickness, no pain, no shame, no death. 
living in total paradise as it was intended from the beginning. Sounds really great, doesn't it? Who wouldn't want that? But did you notice I left something out? I never once mentioned God. And the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, would I be content to live in eternity in paradise if God were not there? I want you to seriously think about that, contemplate that question this morning. Would I be content to live forever in paradise if Jesus weren't there? Martin Luther once said, I had rather be in hell with Christ than be in heaven without him. Obviously, Christ isn't going to hell, but it illustrates the point in a powerful way. Oneness with Christ is the only hope of the true Christian. We abide in Christ by remaining in the truth of his word. And we're going to see in verse 27 of our text today that the Holy Spirit teaches us the truth and he guards us from error. Verse 27, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So the anointing that we receive from him, the Holy Spirit abides in us and teaches us everything that is true about Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Some of you probably noticed by now, every time I stand up here to preach God's word, I ask the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. Why do I do that? Because he's the only one that can. I can't do that. You can't do that. The Holy Spirit of God is the only one that can guide us into truth. Charles Spurgeon once said, you may read the Bible continuously and yet never learn anything by it unless it is illuminated by the Spirit. Then the words shine forth like stars. Then the book seems made of gold leaf. Every single letter glitters like a diamond. Oh, it is a blessed thing to read an illuminated Bible lit up by the radiance of the Holy Spirit. Have you read the Bible and yet have your eyes been unenlightened? Go and say, oh Lord, illuminate it. Shine upon it for I cannot read it to profit unless you enlighten me. Blind men may read the Bible with their fingers, but blind souls cannot. We need a light to read the Bible by. There is no reading it in the dark. We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth of God to us. Just a quick caveat. When John says here, you have no need that anyone should teach you. Some of your ears probably perked up like, what am I doing here? Am I wasting my time? <laughs> He's clearly not saying that we have no need of being taught sound doctrine. Why? Well, he wouldn't have written this letter in the first place if that was the case. He's teaching the church. He's a teacher in the church. Ephesians 4 says teachers are God's gift to the church. What he's saying is, we have no need of anyone teaching us new revelation that goes beyond what the apostles taught from the beginning. Let me ask you, what do a lot of cults have in common? Extra biblical revelation, right? They may say, yeah, the Bible's great. Yeah, Jesus was a great guy, you know, maybe even a prophet, but we have this other thing. We have this other prophet. We have this other holy book. And you really have to have this to truly be saved. Church, that's a lie from the pit of hell. 
The Holy Spirit of God causes us to go deeper into the richness of the truths of Scripture. He never causes us to try to reach beyond it and grasp for more. Holy Spirit teaches us the truth of God's Word. There's an old saying, it's, if it's new, it's not true. Right? Now, we have to be mature and distinguish between new and new to me. Right? Just because you've never heard something before doesn't mean it isn't true. What it means is we have to compare it to the Word of God. We have to look at it and with the help of the Holy Spirit determine, is this, is this what the Word of God teaches or not? In, much in the same way that a bank teller would hold up a counterfeit bill and say, I know the genuine article so well that I can clearly spot the fake. Right? We need to know God's Word so well and with the Spirit's help, again, it doesn't matter how smart you are, if you don't have the Holy Spirit of God guiding you into truth, you're going to be just as deceived as everybody else. But we need to be able to look uh, at the counterfeits in this world and recognize them immediately because we know God's Word, because God's Word is abiding in us. And we also understand this to mean that when we're taught sound doctrine from the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is the one doing the teaching. Yes, God works through human teachers, and thank God for faithful Bible preachers and teachers. But guess what? They can't do what this is saying the Holy Spirit's doing. No human can do that. The Holy Spirit is the one that causes us to discern truth from error. Holy Spirit is the one that guides us into truth. If I stand here today and say anything false, I pray that the Holy Spirit would cause you not to hear it, that it would just fall out of your memory, and you would only remember the true things I said. Holy Spirit of God, no human being can teach you these truths. Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So we abide in Jesus. We remain in Jesus so that when he comes again, we may have confidence rather than shame. I'm going to tell you a story about when I was a kid. Everybody's got a story about when they did dumb stuff as a kid, right? I have a lot of them. So I remember when I was a little kid, there was this bird in our garage. It wouldn't go away. So like any red-blooded American kid, I decided I'm going to get my BB gun. I'm going to take care of this bird problem. So I'm not advocating that, but that's what I did. So at some point, I realized that one of the BBs I shot had it embedded itself in the garage door. Now, the way our door was, there was a wood panel on the outside and there was a cork panel on the inside. So I saw that the BB didn't go through the door, it just kind of stuck in the cork. And I was like, huh, that's neat. So I did it like 10 or 12 more times, <laughs> thinking that I, you know, I can just pop it out, nobody knows the difference, right? Well, little did I know, on the other side of the door, even though it wasn't going through, it was busting the wood out every time it hit. And so there was these like mushroom heads, if you will, busting out on the door. And I was like, oh no, I'm in big trouble. I got to fix this before my dad comes home. And so I, I'm sanding the door and puttying the door. And at some point my friends came up and they're like, what are you doing? And so I explained what I was doing and I'm sitting there puttying and then my dad pulls in the driveway. My friends scattered like roaches when you turn on a light. <laughs> they were gone. And so I'm standing there with the putty knife. Do you think I was confident? 
or was I filled with shame? And to my dad's credit, he didn't beat me. I deserved it, but he was very gracious towards me. But in the same way, it doesn't matter how good of a patch job you do on your life. When Jesus returns to judge the world, if you're trying to fix your life and patch your life on your own, you are not going to be confident before him. You're gonna stand in shame like a stupid little kid who shot holes in the garage door because you can't do anything apart from Christ. What he wants us to see here is that we abide in Christ. We live in such a way that we are always prepared for his coming. We abide in him so that we can stand confidently, not because of anything we've done. It's not about our good works. The Bible says our good works are filthy rags before the Lord. It's not about what we are doing. It's about what Jesus is doing in and through us which we only do when we abide in him. When the judge of all the earth comes, the righteous will stand confidently before him and the wicked will shrink back with shame. We need to let that motivate us, church. We need to be motivated by the reality of Christ's return. We need to let that uh, ever-present reality live inside of our heads and live inside of our hearts so that we are constantly motivated to abide in Christ and to live righteously. Verse 29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So what he's saying here, it's simply those who live like Jesus have been born by Jesus, have been born again. And at a glance, this verse kind of seems out of place, right? We've been talking about doctrine and what we believe and what we confess, all these things, and now we're talking about behavior, He's kind of shifting gears here. And what he wants us to see is that what you believe affects the way you behave, right? We can say we believe the gospel. We can say we abide in Christ all we want. But if our life doesn't match our profession, if our actions don't prove our claims, then we've got nothing, John Stott coming in, he said, a person's righteousness is thus the evidence of his new birth, not the cause or the condition of it. So your righteousness is not what makes you born again. Your righteousness is not what gives you eternal life. It is the righteousness of Christ earned on your behalf and given to you freely when you believe and trust in him as Lord of your life. It's only through the righteousness of Christ abiding in us that we can live righteously. Jesus put it this way in John 15, verses four through six. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. It's a heavy statement from the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to call up the prayer team and the worship team. I would really encourage you today, if you have a prayer need, you want to talk to somebody, please get with these folks. They would love to pray with you, or you can talk to me, or um, we would love to talk to you this morning if you need that. So, I want to conclude this morning by asking some simple questions. How can you know that you have eternal life? Is the truth of the gospel abiding in you? 
Are you believing in and trusting in the true gospel as presented by the apostles? Are you growing in your knowledge of that truth? And how do we do that? We read the word on our own. We attend corporate worship. We attend a small group. We, we get around other believers and we learn and grow in community. Is that truth growing and abiding in you? Are you abiding in Jesus Christ? Are you resting in the finished work of Christ and allowing him to work through you or are you striving and trying to earn it yourself? Are you trying to, to patch the holes in your life on your own or are you allowing Christ to abide in you and work through you? And are you, lastly, are you bearing the fruit of righteousness? When you honestly look at your life, are you bearing fruit? Yep. Can you look at your life and say, I'm different now. I can see where Jesus is doing something in me. I can see fruits of righteousness that he's bearing in me. Now, if you can honestly answer yes to those questions, by all means, you should have assurance. You should know that you know that you have eternal life. And it's passages like this the Lord uses to keep us uses to cause us and motivate us to pursue and persevere in the faith. If you're here today and you would say, you know what, if I'm honest with myself, I don't have that assurance. I don't, I don't know how I would answer those questions. I just want to challenge you and encourage you this morning. You can repent and you can believe and you can ask God to give you his Holy Spirit who will guide you into all truth. And when that truth remains in you, this passage tells us you will remain in the Son and you will remain in the Father and you can have assurance that you have eternal life. Amen, church. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for these precious people that you love. God, and I thank you that you are keeping us, you are persevering us, and you're the only one who can. I pray that we would daily, constantly rely on you for that. And trust in you for that. Lord, that the truth would remain in us, that we would remain in you, and that you would bear much fruit in our lives, God, so that we can know that we have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.